you know what? Uh, I, I think the stuff that we're doing with Dolly Ann and, and the outreach ministry is fantastic. The, the soap shop that Matt mentioned, uh, it's, I like Sarah uh, up there. She's the resident coordinator for Dolly Ann, and, and they just do some cool, great stuff. She works with the clients um, and, and the residents there, and she really is trying to help them learn how to uh, budget their money and, and uh, just, just uh, get themselves out of certain situations. And so she does a lot of counseling, a lot of stuff. So what we're doing with the soap shop is we're actually getting a bunch of uh, items and, and she, she wanted to tie in some, some points or some way for them to earn an opportunity to do it, not just give away stuff. And so um, I, I thought it was a great idea. So we're, we've already started um, that stuff up. And I mentioned the table out there. But uh, bring in stuff. Get it by, you know, I saw, I was at Walmart the other day, and I saw uh, some toothpaste on sale. Uh, buy, buy three, get free. So I grabbed about four of them and threw them in there. It was, I think, five bucks for each one. So 20 bucks. That's all it was, $20, and that's going to help a number of people. So definitely get in there, and, and uh, you know, let's, let's keep driving, co-drive, and, and helping out the Dolly Ann. Uh, it's exciting times here at Covington Baptist. A lot of stuff going on, and and uh, I'm, I'm thrilled. I, I just love seeing what we're going, the direction we're going, and the support we have in, in doing this. So uh, last week, we're actually in this, this week, we have uh, one more. We have today's message, and then next week, we're in Nehemiah, another Nehemiah chapter, and then we're done with Nehemiah. Uh, then we'll move on to a new series for a few weeks, and then we get into the best season of it all, the Christmas season. Yes, the, the, I, I get excited, as you know little nerdy about Christmas. It's, it's uh, my favorite time of year. So we're in uh, chapter 10 of Nehemiah today, and uh, we're, the message is making investments that last. And we'll actually start off at the end of chapter 9, verse 38, and we'll go into chapter 10. There's a long list of things in chapter 10, so we will not read every name that's on this, but we're going to dig into it and see about making commitments. And that's what this message is really about, is about commitments. Um, you know, it reminds me of a story about a guy that had a parrot. A, this guy had a parrot, and this parrot had the foulest mouth that you could ever imagine. He, just, he would just say the worst, nastiest things all the time. It was a beautiful parrot, but yet he had this nasty mouth. And uh, he would, could swear for five minutes straight and not even uh, duplicate a word. That's how bad this mouth was and how bad this parrot was. And he would... Uh, he, the guy would get embarrassed because he would have people over and this parrot would, uh, would just say nasty things and he would always embarrass them. It, it would embarrass them and, and so he would talk with the parrot and said, you know, you really got to clean up your mouth. You got to stop this. And, and the parrot promised and he said, you know what, I'll, I'll do, I'll, I'll clean up my mouth. I'll change. I swear I'll change. And he makes a promise but nothing happened. In fact, the swearing increased and it got worse and worse. And so the guy got really mad and decided to take the parrot and lock him in a cabinet, a kitchen cabinet. Well, the bird uh, got furious, and he started scratching up and squawking and all this stuff, and just was mad. And so the guy opened up the cabinet, and the, the, the bird just started cussing him out, started swearing at him again. And it, it just got worse. So then when, when the guy got really aggravated, he took the bird, and he started choking in, and he's just strangling in, and saying, you know what, you got to quit. So he threw him in the freezer. He's mad. So he threw this bird in the freezer, and he, this, this, uh, this bird starts squealing and squawking again, and, and all of a sudden it got quiet. All of a sudden it, it's silence. So now the guy is sitting there wondering, what's going on? And he starts thinking, he goes, you know what, 
I better check on this bird. He's, he's in there quiet now. So he opens up the freezer, and the bird walks out, climbs up on his, on his arm, and just very politely says, you know, I am, I am really sorry about all the trouble I've given you. I make a solemn promise and vow to clean up my language from now on. So the guy is shocked. He's just beside himself looking at this bird and, and just completely shocked at it. And so the, the bird turns around and says, but I just, I just got one question. What happened to the chickens in the freezer? What did they do? We need a, we need, can we turn me down a little bit back here? My mic is dead? Okay. Um, we, we need that word commitment. Uh, in our, we need to really focus on that word commitment. In our world today, uh, we, we need that word. A lot of people start things, but they have a hard time finishing things. Commitment is such an important thing, and I think in our culture today, we just don't take that word commitment like we used to. Webster's Dictionary defines commitment as an agreement or pledge to do something in the future. It's an agreement, a pledge to do something in the future. See, the reason why many people are afraid of commitment is that they don't want to be obligated. They don't want to, they don't want to be obligated to things and have to do certain, certain things. They want to be free to do whatever they want. They want the freedom to, to you know, not have to be bogged down with things and actually have to do certain things. They want freedom in this. They want to decide at any given moment to do whatever they want. We typically are willing to make a commitment when we see something that benefits us or what we see what's in it for us. But if, it, if we don't necessarily see that, we're, we're hesitant to make a commitment. Generally, people have a difficult time making commitments. We see that in marriages. Marriages, you know, there's a lot of times people will move in together and they'll live together and they, and the, and the, they don't want to get married. They don't want to make that commitment. They want to live like a marriage, but they don't want to make the commitment of marriage. We see that all the time. And that's becoming more and more common today. We see it in churches. We see people who don't want to do anything and they don't want to commit to leadership or they don't want to commit to teaching or, or doing certain things. And they, they come to church and they want, to, they want the freedom to just do kind of whatever they want and, and still have the benefits of being part of a church. But they don't want to commit to anything here. And we see that all the time in ministry. It's like that old 80-20 rule. 20, 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people. Making a commitment is good, but I know it can, be, it can be scary, too. The Bible talks about commitment when we, when we, uh, about commitments that we make in Numbers chapter 30. In Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, it says, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word. He must do whatever he has promised. That's pretty serious stuff. And a commitment is not to be taken lightly. All through Scripture, we see that Old Testament and New Testament, there's, uh, there, we see that it's supposed to be taken seriously and not lightly. And the New Testament, Jesus warns against empty promises, and we see that in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. It says, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, do not, break a, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, 
because it is God's throne, or by earth because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem because it is a city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your word be yet, or let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. That's pretty serious stuff. That's some pretty, pretty blunt about the importance of making a commitment, making your word, your yes is yes and your no is no. Now, Jesus in this is not talking about never making a vow. Now, he's not talking about, let me just be clear here. Some Pharisees lived hypocritically. They, they, what they would say is, it's, as long as if you make the vow to the Lord, you have to keep that. But if, you don't, if it's not to the Lord, it's okay. You don't have to keep those vows. You don't have to keep those commitments. You don't have to keep those promises. And Jesus is saying no to that. He's saying that is absolutely not the way it's supposed to be. He's saying your character should be one that is such when, when you're willing to do something and you make that commitment, you shouldn't have to swear on all these things for people to believe you that you'll do what you say you do. You shouldn't have to do that for people to believe and trust in you because your character should be as such that you are a man or woman of your word. And live in such a way, when you commit to something, you don't have to back it up by a bunch of oaths and promises. You don't have to say, I, I, man, I, I swear on the word of God that I will be there on time. You shouldn't have to do that. Because if your character is there, and you are a man or woman of your word, you don't have to do that kind of stuff. When you say, I will be there, people know, oh, that person will be there. He's also saying never... He's also saying that you never make a commitment to the Lord or make a covenant to the Lord. Deuteronomy 23.21 tells us not to lightly enter a commitment to the Lord. He says basically to take this very, very serious. If you're going to make a commitment to the Lord or make an oath, Lord, I promise to do this or that, take it very, very serious. And it says here in Deuteronomy 23.21, it says if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to keep it. Because he has required it of you, and it will be counted against you as sin. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty serious stuff here. It's counted. If we make a vow to God, and we don't fulfill that, that's counted as sin, according to that scripture. Ecclesiastes 5.4 says, When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it, because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Again, wow, that's some powerful stuff. So making a vow or a commitment to the Lord is not wrong, but you shouldn't do it rashly and in haste. You shouldn't, you shouldn't take it lightly. You should take it very, very serious when you make that commitment. When you make a commitment to the Lord, you should take it serious and make sure that you do it. So we see the Israelites making oaths in Nehemiah chapter 10. Now we get into the, that chapter. And we, we see them making an oath. And that's what we're going to study today a little bit. We're going to talk about this oath that they've taken and, and why it's so important and what they've done. Why, why is it important? Why, my question is this. Why should we make a commitment to the Lord if throughout history, we fail in making, and Israel's failed in com, uh, committing or fulfilling those commitments, why should we even do it? Why is that even important? 
And I think it's because of two good reasons. One, I find that there's two good reasons to make commitments. And the first one is that it helps us focus. We often sit in service and we hear God speaking to us and, and something stirs us up and we, we're like, you know what, I really need to, to work on my marriage or I need to pray with my family more, whatever it may be. God starts speaking to us. And then many times we fail to act on it. We fail to commit to it. We get that stirring of the Spirit. I call it the quickening of the Spirit. The, the God's clearly nudging on you, nudging on your heart, and then we don't commit to it. When we make a commitment or something, it helps us stay focused on what exactly we're committing to. For example, if it says, you know, if we're, if we're going to make a commitment to go to church regularly, we're not going to, you know, I'm making a commitment I will not miss more than two Sundays a year. I'm going to make that commitment. See, it's focused. It's very focused. I'm going to commit to uh, devotions with my family every evening or every morning. I'm going to do a devotional with my family. I'm going to make that commitment. This is very specific. Or I'm I'm going to commit to following the Lord in some area in obedience. See, it's very specific. And it helps us focus on the things that we need to do. And when we don't commit, we find it very easy to, to stray away, to, to walk away. When we don't make that commitment and we're not focused, we, we slowly start walking away from these things. And the second thing is it shows our love. So it, shows, it gives us focus and it also shows our love. When we commit to someone, we're telling them that I'm not going to rely on just my feelings. We're telling them that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to fulfill my commitment, even when I don't feel like it. God shows us his love by keeping, us, or keeping, keeping his covenant and his commitments to us, even when we don't live up to our end of the bargain. The old covenant had obligations for the Jews that they couldn't really uphold. They couldn't fulfill these obligations. So God created a new covenant for them, a new commitment, and that was through Jesus Christ. And as Jesus, when he died and resurrected, he was in a new covenant with us, a new promise, a new commitment with us. And then whoever receives Jesus Christ, is, is com- God's commitment is there permanently, and they get to go to heaven, period. That's how much he loves us. It's making, he made a commitment to us because of his love for us. He made the covenant while we are still sinning against him. So making a covenant will help us stay focused and it will show our actions, show our love to the Lord and love to the other people. When we make commitments to people, it shows that uh, our love for them. So where do we start? We talk about commitments. Where do we start in this commitment? What's the first set of commitments that we can begin with? Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 10, and we'll see the Israelites committed to after returning to Jerusalem and discovering that they were not following the Lord as they should. So remember last week, we talked about, now they, well actually the week before that, they're celebrating, and then in chapter 9, they got sorrow because they realized that they weren't fulfilling what God wanted for them. They were not following God. They had this commitment, they, 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 you know, this, this uh, way of life that God has taught them. They were learning from the scriptures and they realized they weren't fulfilling the, what God has in store. They weren't following God. So now we're moving on to chapter 10 and now we see them put this into action. Now they're actually, that, that sadness and that guilt, they're putting, they're stepping up. Now they're doing something about them. Now they're making a commitment. 
In chapter 9, verse 38, it says, In this view, or in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are, are affixing their seals on it. So it shows that now there's a turning point. Now their, their sorrow is motivating them to do something. They're, they're doing something, a, a, a commitment to God. The Israelites are, are getting serious, and they're putting this in writing. When in Nehemiah chapter 10, verses uh, 1 through 27, we see the names on this covenant. Now, this is just a, a, some key people. In this section, we, we see the Israelites making the commitment. But it's the Israelites and priests and a few other people that are making it. But look at verses 28 and 29. Nehemiah 10, 28 and 29. It'll be up on the screen. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, gatekeepers, singers, and temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand who has separated themselves from the surrounding people to obey the law of God, joined with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to fulfill the law God has given through the God's servant Moses and to carefully obey all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of Yahweh our Lord. They made a commitment to submit to God's word. And that's where we need to start. When we make, a, as Christians, the first thing we need to commit to, as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to commit to submitting to God's word. And that's our first point of the message. Submission to God's word. When Nehemiah's name is, is, well, Nehemiah's name is on the head of that list. And 84 people have signed and put their seal on it. Now this list included priests, Levites, leaders of the people, and many other uh, citizens subs- uh, subscribed to the covenant who didn't sign their name because they didn't have a legal right to. So there was a lot of people that did this. It wasn't just these small group. All the people who have heard God's word and, and read and, and it was uh, explained to them are now committing themselves to obedience to God's word. Now, they're, now they've, they've heard it. They felt guilty in chapter 9. They felt bad because they weren't following God. Now, again, they're shifting things. Now they're making the commitment. They're making a commitment to follow God's commandments. Look at verse 29. It says, to carefully obey all the commands, ordinances, and statutes. I mean, they're making a full-on commitment to do it all. They're going to follow God. Putting a seal on this document was a, a serious matter during this time. For us, you know, we sign our names to all kinds of stuff. But back then, you put your seal and you sign your name to something. It was a, a major orde- ordeal. It was, it was important. Because it was taking a solemn oath before the Lord. The law governing vows, we read that a minute ago in chapter 30. It was so serious that for them to do this and take that step, they're making a commitment before God and they knew the consequences. They knew that they could not break that promise. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath that to obligate himself to buy a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. That's important. So these guys were not just making this, yeah, I'll do that, no problem. This was, I'm putting the seal on it, making a, a very serious commitment to serving the, serving the Lord in all their life. Now, since the oath involved names and possible judgment of God, it was not taken lightly because of that. Jesus warned about that, about taking senseless oaths. 
Solomon also warned in Ecclesiastes. So should believers today take oaths? So should we make oaths like this um, as we seek to walk with the Lord? Probably not. Not in that same way. Our relationship with the Lord is different today because he is our Heavenly Father and we're his children. And our Father wants our obedience based on love, not obligation. I don't know too many examples in the New Testament where there's, you know, oaths being taken. I don't know of any of the apostles talking about that we should take an oath before God. We don't succeed as Christians because we make promises to God, but because we believe in the promises of God and act upon it. Because of our love for God and God's love for us, we are obedient to him and we make that commitment to submit to his word. Oaths are often based on fear. If I don't do this, something's going to happen. If I don't do this, God's going to smite me down or a lightning bolt in heaven is going to come down. And God's going to do something if I don't do it. It's often based on fear. And fear is not the highest motivator. Although it does motivate people, fear is not the highest motivator. Love is the highest motivator. Our obedience should be a joyful response because of all that God has done for us, because of who he is and all the blessings he's brought to us. But starting with salvation and relationship with God in the first place, we should love the fact that of what he's done and just and who he is and say, Lord, I will be obedient because of who you are, because of love. We should see that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. The second thing we see is the separation of God's of the people of God. Separation of the people of God. Now, at first glance, this looks maybe like it's a you know racism or something, some separation, but it's not. The Jewish remnant was surrounded by idolatrous uh, Gentiles who wanted the Jews to become part of their social environment. They kept uh, wanting the Jews to come and be part of of their business society and the religious society. But the law of Moses prohibited God's people from living like the Gentiles. Although it didn't stop the Jews from being good neighbors or even good customers, it was the ministry of the priests that were to teach the people to follow God and not be like the Gentiles. In Ezekiel 44, verse 23, it says the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and clean. So the ministry of the priests is to teach the people not to live like the Gentiles. Separation is simply a total devotion to God, no matter what the cost. A total devotion to God, no matter what the cost. When a man and a woman get married, they separate themselves from other people. When we get married, we're making that commitment. When I got married, I'm basically saying, all the women in the world that I could ever date, I'm I'm separating myself from them. I'm no longer going to pursue anything else i'm no longer going to be associated with dating other women i am making a commitment i'm separating myself from that making a commitment to my wife it is a total commitment motivated by love and it's a balanced decision it's a it's a we separate ourselves from others to the one who we believe is our life mate our partner the person we love the Jews separated from people around them and to the Lord. So they, the, they separated away from the Gentiles and they 
move toward God. And they're saying, we're not going to follow these. We're not going to pursue the Gentiles. We're not going to be like them. We're no longer going to do that. We're making a commitment to not do that. And we're going to make a commitment to following God. That's why all through the New Testament it talks about marriage and the bride of Christ is the church and all these references to marriage because that's how important it is. They were to separate themselves from the Gentiles and align themselves and make a commitment to God. Only the Holy Spirit can give us that kind of balance we need to live a godly life in an ungodly world. The legalist wants to live by rules But that style of life only keeps you immature and dependent on your spiritual leaders. The only way to grow a balanced life in in the Christian life is to give yourself totally to God and follow him by faith. To remove yourself from the rest of the world. You were in the world, but not of the world. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. We are in the world here, and we're going to be experiencing all these things, but we need to remove ourselves from that lifestyle and live a godly lifestyle to be one with god and to follow and submit to him separate ourselves from those things see there's two areas that are mentioned in in this verse in these verses and that's one of marriage and one of sabbath see marriage is a big part of this the danger of mixed marriages was uh during that time was a loss of faith on the part of the jewish mate how could a jew marry a gentile and observe the dietary laws and celebrate in the annual festivals. It's impossible. Between the husband and wife, there, should be, there would be constant conflicts. There would be constant battles between this because of the religious differences. And then there would be a, an occasional compromise. And finally, a complete conformity. Eventually, there would be something. The Jews' mate would usually abandon their spiritual heritage. How can they go in front of, uh, celebrate these, these festivals if one of them was consistently ceremonial unclean? They couldn't. See, there's very specific rules in the Jewish culture. Now, why would the, a Jew want to marry a pagan Gentile in the first place? Part of it, probably affection. You know, we, we, when we first start dating, we see somebody and we, we usually are attracted to them in some way. But then there's also the, the business side of things. They could have done it for social status, from business gain, uh, political advantages. There's a lot of reasons uh, that these people would intermarry. Some, like some believers today, they, uh, some, some of them believe that if they marry a Gentile or marry an unbeliever, they say, oh, you know, I'm gonna, I'll, I, I love them, I'll marry them, and hope that I can bring them to Christ later. And I think a lot of that happened during that time. And I think it happens today. I hear it all the time I, I, as I counsel with, with church members and, and they have an unbelieving spouse and they say, oh, you know, um, how do I get them to come to Christ? And usually I tell them, you, you can't. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. And you just got to keep praying and keep encouraging. But there's a lot of times there's a conflict that happens. You know, some of them even say, I've actually heard this one. As long as, you know, as long as we love each other, it'll work out. And that's the argument that they'll say. But the question is not if the marriage works out. It might. But will this marriage enjoy God's blessing? Will this marriage enjoy uh, the fulfillment of God's will? 
It's difficult to see how God can bless and use people who deliberately disobey his word. The observance of the Sabbath was a distinctly Jewish practice. So we have the marriage, but also we have the Sabbath. And it was very distinct because not everybody practiced a Sabbath thing. All the Gentiles, none of them did. The Gentiles around the Jerusalem would treat the seventh day of the week like any other day. It was a business day. They were open for business. They would treat it like any other day. But the Jews were supposed to separate themselves and, and be a little different. They, while the Jewish Sabbath was not, only a, day, was not a day of bondage or, or anything like that, it was a day devoted to rest and, compl- uh, uh, rest and, uh, and, and reflecting on God. It was a day to separate it, to reflect on God and, uh, and, and just think about how God is working in our lives and, and, uh, and to re- relax a little bit in God's word. It was a weekly reminder to the nation that they were Jews and that there was a special calling in the world. Some of the Jewish merchants were, would be especially interested in getting to business with the Gentiles. Some of them would close up shop. Just to, to, like they should and, and worship God, but then others would open up business. The Jewish leaders and Jewish merchants would open up for business and they would start working with them with the, the Gentiles. Moses didn't spell out specific rules on obeying or observing the, the Sabbath. There's an ex, but there is an expectation that, that they were to do an unnecessary work. For example, in Exodus 35, it says they weren't to light any fires on the Sabbath. And one man in Numbers 15 was stoned to death for carrying wood. So there was a, a certain aspect of not working in there. The prophets sternly rebuked the Jews for violating the Sabbath. And we see that in Jeremiah, Amos, Isaiah, all over the place. And because of their disobedience was a symptom of a deeper issue. They were not committing to God. They were not separating themselves like God asked them to do. And they weren't following what God wanted them to do. And it was really not about the work or whether they're working or not working. It was the disobedience they had against God. The serious affirmation of faith reported in this chapter also included observance of this sabbatical year. Sabbatical year was every seven years, what they would do is they would take, a, or take two years off. And then what they would do is they, would, uh, they wouldn't plant and they, wouldn't, and they would just trust God for two years. Could you imagine taking two years off of your job with no income coming in and trusting God to provide for you? And that's what they were doing. They would not plant I mean, they would still work, but they wouldn't plant. And they would let the, let the ground heal. And they would do that for two years. And then every seven, they would do that um, every seven years. And then every seventh year, or seventh one, so every 50 years, they would do a year of Jubilee. And then that would, they would trust God for food for three years. That's some serious faith. They would trust God for three years to provide the nation had not faithfully celebrated these special sabbatical uh, observances. So for the Jewish remnant to promise to celebrate the sabbatical year was a huge step of faith. They went from never celebrating it to saying, you know, we're going to do this. Now keep in mind that if you remember a few weeks ago, we mentioned that during this time, the agriculture was, they're in a famine and they're having some hard times planting anyway. And then also with building the wall, they were having some issues there because people were building the wall and not planting crops. So now they're not like in this, this great state where they got this huge 
uh, stockpile of food and they're going to trust God and say, okay, you know what? We have these barrels full of food that can last us a few years. Yeah, we're fine. We'll trust God now. No, these guys were, they didn't have any money. They didn't have much, uh, didn't have any food, didn't have much money, and they're going to trust God. Not to have extra produce for a whole year would certainly affect their business with the Gentiles around them. The, people, the people's willingness to obey the law is a beautiful illustration that we see in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, which is, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. These folks had faith, and they sought God. That's how big this commitment was. Now, the third commitment, and the third aspect was support for the house of God. And we see that in verses 20, uh, 32 through 39. Now, the phrase in this is the house of our God is used nine times in this section. Nine times. So I think it's something that we should emphasize here and we should look at. It refers to the restored temple. The people were promising God that they would obey his laws and, and provide what was needed for the ministry of the temple. So they were just, they were acting on a faith, they're submitting to God's word, they're separating themselves from the Gentiles, and now they're saying, you know what, we're going to commit to the house of God. We're going to commit to the work of the ministry. We're going to commit to the house of the temple. And in verse 39 it says, we will not forsake the house of our God. British expositor C. Campbell Morgan said this, whereas the house of God today is no longer material but spiritual, The material is still a very real symbol of the spiritual. When the church of God in any place, in in any locality is careless about the material place of assembly, the place of its worship and its work, it is a sign and evidence that its life is at a low ebb. How we take care of the ministry and how we support this ministry is a direct reflection of how we, our relationship with God. That's why I was so proud and so happy to see all the people coming yesterday to volunteer to help. We cleaned up a lot of things, cleaned up multiple rooms. We got uh, the kinship care group has their own uh, study room or, or meeting room now. Uh, we got the youth ministry upstairs, thanks to Christian's hard work. Uh, there's, you know, the people were working and the, making sure the windows were sealed up. I mean, there's a lot of work done we took care of the building i think morgan i think campbell morgan was right to be sure god doesn't live in the houses in which we assemble to worship him but the way we care for those buildings indicate the way we think about our god the restored jewish temple didn't have that magnificent you know the the gold and the, the beauty that solomon's temple had but it was god's house just the same and it deserved the support of the people it deserved to be taken care of by the people. And their promised support was specific and involved four different areas of ministry. They were, they were very specific in how they were going to take care of the house of God. And the first one was a temple tax. The first thing they used was, it was an annual census of people 20 years old and older was accompanied by collecting a temple tax. Now, a half, uh, a half tax is to be used to support the ministry of the house of God. And the temple, or the tax, was a reminder to the people that God had redeemed them and paid a price to set them free, and that they should behave like people who belong to God. The original tax was used uh, to make silver sockets and hooks for the tabernacle, but in later years, it helped pay for the expenses of ministry. 
Times were hard during this time, as we just talked about, and there wasn't a lot of wealth there at the time. So what they did was they took this half of a shekel, uh, or they did a, a third of a shekel instead of a half. So they actually lowered the amount of the temple tax to help relieve the, the strain on the people. This temporary change didn't alter the meaning of the, of the tradition or lessen the devotion of the people. God's people must be, use their common sense when they obey the Lord in this. They must use common sense. We, we, we must not put ourselves burdens that God never expected us to carry. But, rather, but neither should we look at the easiest, least demanding way to serve the Lord. So on the one hand, we shouldn't necessarily put a, you know, mortgage our house so we can buy carpet for the church or something. But we got to use common sense with this. But at the same time, we don't neglect the things of the church just because we can. And we don't take the easiest way. God's people must use their common sense when seeking to obey the Lord. <clears throat> we today don't have uh, to provide animals and all these things for the, the sacrifices that were used back then. But we do have to maintain the work of the ministry. We do have uh, salaries to pay. We do have sharing with the needy. We do have to be good stewards with what we have. We have to take care of the building. We have to take care of uh, the, the poor. These are things that are, are certain in Scripture. If we're going to walk, if we are walking with the Lord, we must, or we will want to do our part in supporting the ministry of the church that goes on here. The, the church can't survive without the help of its people. The next one is a wood offering. Then we have the temple tax, and now we have the wood offering in verse 34. Since the fire at the brazen altar had to always be lit, it was constantly being on fire. People, there was a constant need for wood. And wood was a, you know, a, an important commodity during these, for these folks. But you know what? It was something that everybody can chip in on. Some people had more wood than others. So they would chip in. And there was no real guidelines on this. They just knew that there was a constant need. That was such a it was a it was just a humble thing to provide wood, but yet it was so important for people to provide it. And they can they can sacrifice their time and energies to provide for those needs. There was no special directions in the law concerning this offering, but tradition says that it was certain days of the year were set aside for people to bring wood to the sanctuary. Since the priest needed wood at the altar, the people could provide for it, and they just worked out a system. I think that's how it works in modern churches. If there's a need, we bring it to the people, and we say, hey, here's how, here's a wood offering. Here's an opportunity for you to help. The next one is our first fruits. The Jews were taught to give God their first and the best, and this was a good example for us to do today. In Proverbs 3.9, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. No one, nowhere in Scripture does it talk about how much your first fruits is. I know we talk about tithe. We say a lot of times we say our first fruits is our tithe, but that's but nowhere in Scripture does it really tie first fruits as anything a specific amount. They just know that it was to be brought to the temple and to be used, uh, but the offering was to be brought before the people and did and anything else they were to harvest, and they would just store it in the temple and use for as needed for the temple servants. Now the third one, or the fourth one, is their tithe. Now the tithe is called, is referencing a a tenth. And the Jews were to bring a tenth of their produce to the Lord each year to support the Levites. 
Now, this is what, when I was doing some research on this, it was really interesting because the tithe, during that time, they would bring a tenth of their produce for the Levites, but then the Levites were to give a tithe of the tithe, so that would go to the priest. So the, the tithe that would come in, they would take 10% and they would give it to the priest. And the Jews were to tithe, or the Jews were also to tithe the 90% that was left over and take it to the temple for annual feasts. So they would tithe again, that 90% that was left over that they tithe, they would take they would tithe again and bring that once a year for the temple for annual feast. Now a third tribe, a third tithe was received every third year for the poor. Does there a tithe? It wasn't just one tithe. There was multiple tithes that these guys did. So it's amazing that I didn't know that for the longest time. Just how much that they were giving. When the spiritual life of Israel was at its low point, there was little brought to the temple to support the ministry, and many of the Levites had to find their means of support. In times of spiritual quickening, the people would bring their offerings, and there would be plenty. So there was a direct tie, correlation around the spiritual life of the church, of the people. When, they were, when the spiritual life of the people were healthy and good, the, they wouldn't, the temple was taken care of, the tithes were taken care of. But then at the low points, they were struggling. Doesn't that seem true to today? And the way life is today? Tithes can be a great blessing, but there's a few dangers that we've got to be aware of. One is giving with the wrong motives, out of a sense of duty or fear, or even greed. Yeah, giving in, You can give tithe and want something in return. If I tithe, God will prosper me. Some people think that. They call it the prosperity gospel. The more I tithe, the more reward I get from God. That's wrong. We can do it as a sense of duty. I, I do not want anybody in this church to tithe because they feel like they have to. I want to make that perfectly clear. I'm preaching on this. Uh, anytime I preach on giving or tithe or anything like this, I want to be perfectly clear. Never do it out of fear or obligation. Do it out of love. If you tithe, do it because you want to. Do it because you love God and you want to see the church grow and a ministry um, being taken care of and give to God. Don't do it out of obligation. The second thing is, a uh, second warning or danger is thinking that they can do what they please with the rest of the 90. So we tithe, so I got 90% back and I can do whatever I want with it. That's a danger because you know what? That's still God's blessing. God gave it to you. And the third is giving only the tithe and failing to give the love offering to the Lord. To give the tithe and not give anything else when, when something is needed. God's got to put it on your heart to give, and I know that. But giving is, is it's not out of obligation. I said it's over love. In light of all that God has done for us, we don't want to neglect this aspect of giving back to him. God didn't forsake his people when they were in need. We see that in Nehemiah 9. And they promised not to forsake the house of God. Years before, the prophet Haggai had rebuked the people because they were so busy taking care of their own houses that they neglected the house of God. And this warning needs to be held today. 
when there's a true spiritual awakening, a, a true spiritual revival, it will reveal itself in the way we support God's work beginning in our own church. It's more than just making faith promises. It's more than just making small commitments. It's if we're going to revitalize this church, we have to make that commitment. We have to begin by taking care of this local church. Winston Churchill said, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In Matthew 6, Nehemiah ends this chapter with, I will, we will not forsake the house of our God. In verse 39. Having said that, many people will never come to the point of getting serious with their walk with God because they never get specific with him. Get specific. Make a commitment, a specific commitment. We hear sermons and we, we get the sense uh, God's pulling us in certain directions and God's tugging on our hearts. And, and, but until we decide to completely commit to him, nothing will change. We have to make those commitments. As we come to our time of invitation, I want to invite you to this time to think about the decisions that God wants you to make. I want you to take this time. You know, we're, we're going to do kind of a different altar call. We're, I'm not going to invite you guys up. I want you to stay in your seats. I want you to stay seated. I want you to pray. I want you to talk to God during this time when, as Jan sings, the song is We Fall Down. It's a great song. And as we, as we sing, I want you to pray. I want you to think about the commitment that you've made to God. Whatever that is. You know what it is. He knows what it is. Make, think about that commitment. And ask yourself, are you fulfilling that commitment? Are your yeses yes and your noes no? Are you being a man or woman of your word? Whatever it is. Take this time to reflect on it. If you want, I'll be up here still and I'll pray with you if you want prayers. And if you want to come up to the altar and just submit, surrender to God, awesome. Go for it. It's, and if you want to come up, come up. Jen.